Well, I hope you guys have been enjoying this series through the Gospel of John. If you remember right, a few weeks ago, Tony taught this passage that was more than just miracles of Jesus. It's a lens by which we begin to see the entire Gospel of John. And Jesus' first two kind of public sightings, the first one, he was turning water into wine. And the second one, he was making a whip and going into the temple and punishing religious leaders for turning what was supposed to be a place of prayer into a house of trade. And something that I've been thinking about the past several weeks, as we've seen Jesus interact with different people in the Gospel of John, is that those interactions that Jesus had, turning water into wine and, and making a whip, are the ways that he's interacting with everybody. Now, here's what I mean. Do you remember the interaction that he had with Nicodemus? We said Nicodemus was a religious person who was good. And what we see Jesus doing with Nicodemus is primarily rebuking him. In other words, the person who's normally getting affirmation, Jesus is bringing a whip into the relationship. And he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And then, last week, we saw Jesus interacting with this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. She's a religious person and she's bad. And we see Jesus offering her living water. In other words, wine. For the lost person, the broken person, the outsider. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus interacting with somebody who's at the bottom of the barrel. This person is irreligious. They're far from God. And not just far from God, wants nothing to do with God, and is having a pity party. And we see how Jesus interacts with this man in such a surprising gracious way. And what we're going to see in the text is that Jesus brings true rest through his word. So the first thing we see in the text is that Jesus brings rest from self-pity. Look with me again at John chapter 5 verses 1 through the first half of 9. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Okay, so in Jerusalem, there's this place called Bethesda. And you can picture the scene. There's all these people everywhere who are looking for a miraculous healing. And that's because there was this pool at Bethesda, 
And it was believed that every once in a while, there would be an angel who would come and stir up the waters in the pool. And then it was a race to see who could get in the pool first, and whoever got in the pool first would have been healed. Now, there's argument whether this was true or it was a superstition. But for this particular man, it had been impossible for him to get into the pool. Get this, for 38 years, he had been laying by this pool. And his excuse to Jesus is that he has no one to help him. He has no one to pick him up and to put him into the pool because he's paralyzed. He can't move to get himself into the pool. We learn later on in the text, and we'll explore this idea more, that the reason that this man is paralyzed is his own fault. He maybe got drunk at a party at one point, breaking every commandment, and accidentally fell off a roof. And that's at least what I'm telling myself, and got paralyzed. So it's his fault that he's paralyzed. So he's got a guilty, sinful conscience. He has no one to help him. So he's completely all alone. And quite frankly, he is throwing an absolute pity party for himself for 38 years. To the point where Jesus comes up to him and says, Do you want to be healed? Now, what an insensitive question at one level, right? You've been paralyzed for 38 years. Of course you want to be healed. But notice how the man answers Jesus. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He doesn't even give Jesus a straight answer, which I think gives us the indication that this guy has been in an incredibly bad spot for an incredibly long time so that he doesn't even really know how to answer the question anymore because he has put on a negative identity. Even though it's negatively affected him, even though he's been in a terrible place, he is that poor guy who's laying by the pool with no friends and no help. He's given up believing in God and he's sad. And he, the only interaction that he wants to have with Jesus is not a helpful interaction. He wants Jesus to join in with his pity party. I remember interacting with a homeless guy in Iowa City when I was a college pastor there. Our College ministry met kind of in a downtown area, and there were a lot of homeless people who would come around and would even come to our ministry. And this particular homeless guy was around so much that students in our ministry and people in our church were doing things for him all the time. People would give him money, people would let him sleep on the couch, people would buy him food, people would buy him clothes, so on and so forth, for years. And one time, He was interacting with one of our other pastors, and the pastor was basically asking him the same question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get out of homelessness? Because there's this church of people who could help you get out of that place. 
And he looked at this pastor in our church and he said, you know what? I love being homeless. And he's like, why? Because no one expects anything from me. No one tells me what to do. I don't have a boss. All anyone expects me to be is miserable, and I don't like expectations, so I would rather be homeless than be well. This guy is in that kind of place. Just a horrible place. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And he's looking at him in the eyes. This guy has no faith, as far as we can see. He has nothing that would draw Jesus to him. He's maybe the worst person of the whole bunch. And Jesus looks at him and says, Rise. Take up your bed and walk. Now, I think there's something happening here at two levels, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. He's telling him, yes, rise physically, take up your bed physically, and walk. But he's also, at a more profound, at a deeper level, saying to this man, your problem all of these years has not primarily been that you're paralyzed in your body. The problem for all these years is that you've been paralyzed in your soul. You've given up your identity as a child of God. And instead, you've put on an identity as a hopeless, worthless person. And Jesus, with a word, calls him out of that. Now notice, it's fully the work of Jesus, but there's also a condition. The man has a choice in that moment. If he were to have just laid there, presumably he would have never walked. He had to respond to the work of Jesus in healing his body by doing what he said. And I wonder how many of us this morning, because of some physical ailment or because of some sin struggle, are in a similar place that this man was in. We have cloaked ourselves in a negative identity. Jesus has come to us commanding us to put that identity aside and be clothed in his perfect righteousness, to take on an identity as a child of God, to walk out of this place of brokenness and negativity and walk into his kingdom, and we are making excuses, not willing to take a next step. And Jesus is saying to him and to us, rise. Pick up your bed and walk. Okay, we see right on the heels of this. So we know the man does it. 
he rises, pick up, picks up his bed, and walk. You can kind of see all the other people looking on. I mean, there's multitudes of people, perhaps thousands of people, who are looking at this happening. And there's a commotion going through the crowd. And without hesitation, the religious leaders are there to steal his joy. Not by bringing him back into self-pity, but by threatening his newfound freedom with an offer of religion. So here's the second thing we see in the text that Jesus offers us. Rest from religion. We're going to reread verse 8, the first half of verse 9, and then go through verse 13. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to pick up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now immediately we read this text from our vantage point, and we're like, what in the world? How could these religious leaders be so insensitive that they are worried about whether this guy is keeping the rules when he obviously was just healed and is walking for the first time in 38 years. But I want you to dive with me a little bit into the worldview that they had, and maybe it'll make a little bit more sense of what the place that they're coming from, and maybe it'll even be a little bit convicting to us. So something that you need to know is that the Jewish leaders believed that there were 39 different categories of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And I just looked this up in a simple Google search, found an Orthodox Jewish website, and the first item listed on that list of forbidden work is carrying. You're not allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath. And at first we're like, are you serious? Like these people were so uptight. Why weren't you allowed to carry on the Sabbath? They've got Bible to back it up. Okay, look with me at Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 through 22. This is God speaking. Take heed and carry no burdens on the Sabbath. Also, do not carry any burden out of your houses on the Sabbath. So here's what an Orthodox Jew would say to you. The reason that we didn't believe that this man should be carrying this mat on the Sabbath is because God tells us not to carry things on the Sabbath. So see, they're just good Bible students and we're not. We don't know our Bibles that well. I mean, when's the last time you read through the Old Testament? Okay, so we got to be slow to jump in and just judge them right away. So what do we do with that? How do we sort all of this out? Well, the best Bible student in the room 
is the man who just got healed. And he hasn't gone to Sunday school in a long time. He's a completely irreligious guy. He's been pitying himself, and yet he has just been healed. And so they're like, why are you carrying this mat? And the man simply says, the man who healed me, he's the one who told me to pick up and carry my mat. So his logic is, if this person with a sentence can tell my muscles to go back to full strength, and if he can get blood flowing back to the right places, and he can make my body that's been laying in one place for 38 years hop up and I'm walking, if he has that kind of authority over the physical universe, then maybe he also has that kind of authority in the moral universe. Okay, so here's the problem. Is God contradicting God? We believe that Jesus is God. God in the Old Testament said, don't carry anything. Jesus in the New Testament is saying, you can carry that mat. So is there a contradiction here? What's going on? I think what we're seeing here is that God is the one who made the Sabbath. And what the Pharisees were missing was not the letter of the law. What they were missing was the heart of God. Why did God tell the Israelites not to carry on the Sabbath? Because they were agricultural workers, they were farmers, and it was their tendency, as it still is the tendency for farmers today, to work hard and work seven days a week and keep carrying things, and it was wearing them down, and it was wearing out their families, and their, their marriages were breaking down, their relationships with their kids weren't good. And so he's telling them, guys, stop carrying burdens on the Sabbath and instead take a day of rest for your family and for your life. So the heart of God in giving his law was not to place further burdens on people, but it was to take burdens away. And so we see that Jesus here is doing the exact same thing for this man. See, that mat for him represented the place of his imprisonment. That was the place where he had been laying for 38 years. And so Jesus, in saying, pick up your mat, is saying, let go of your burden. Live a life of freedom. Never come back to this place again where you're paralyzed and living in self-pity. I've given you my command for your joy. And so Jesus aims to restore the purpose of the law of God, not as being a way for us to climb a ladder, justify ourselves, and to be right, but that the law would be a place where we find rest 
in doing what our Heavenly Father has commanded us to do for our good. So here's what the religious leaders are like in this particular case. I used to play this game with my kids when they were little. I called it fee-fi-fo-fum. As far as I know, I made it up, okay? We, were in the back, we would play in our backyard, and I would chase my kids around, and I would, like, stomp and be like, fee-fi-fo-fum, I'm going to get your little buns and chase them around. And I basically just made up the rules as I went. But my heart in playing that game with my kids was that they would have fun. So imagine if I had made the rule that if you're not on base and I get you, then you're out, okay? But let's say one of my kids was just almost to base and they were about touching it and I touched them just before they touched base, but I said they were still in because I knew if they got out that they wouldn't be having fun and the purpose of the game is fun. And imagine one of my neighbors saw that happen and was like looking over the fence and he's like, they didn't touch the, the playground. They're out. You're breaking the rules. And what if they just kept insisting on it, and the game stopped, and my kids are like, what is going on? Why is this guy interfering with our game? The game's about fun. He's like, you're not keeping the rules. What's going on? Well, I would eventually just have to look at this guy and be like, I made up the game. Like, I'm the ruler of fee-fi-fo-fum. Stay out of it. And that's essentially what this guy is saying to the Pharisees that is so profound in this passage. Is Jesus made the law. His heart is good. He told me to do this. What he says goes. And he saw profoundly that the purpose of the rules was in order not to put more burdens onto us, but to free us from carrying burdens altogether. Are you interacting with God religiously? Are you seeing his rules as a killjoy? And treating him as if he is trying to spoil all of your fun. Are you looking at his commandments and dreading them? Or are you seeing that his heart is good? That the path for your joy is obedience to your heavenly father who loves you. Who wants what's best for you. Who has commanded you what he's commanded you so that you will walk in the path of your greatest happiness and contentment. Let's join this guy in seeing that that is the heart of God. Now, there's a few things that we can easily turn into laws that burden us rather than pathways of freedom for us to run on. Think about the idea of spending time in God's word. Let's just do a little checkup here. Okay? For you, right now, if you're honest with yourself, how are you thinking about spending time in God's word? Is it, I delight to spend time in God's word. I can't wait. First thing in the morning 
to grab my cup of coffee, grab a Bible, sit down with God, interact with him, and enjoy time with him? Or have you turned that into a religious duty where when you hear this command from God to meditate on his word day and night, you are saying, oh, you got to be kidding me. All right, I'll get my five minutes in. I'll check the box. I'll do it. But I'm only going to do it religiously. This isn't really coming from a place of wanting to do it. It's coming from a place of having to do it. How about coming to church? Has this just become this ordinary thing for us where we wake up on Sunday morning and we grew up going to church and we know we're supposed to go to church and so I'm going to check the box, I'm going to go to, the ch- go to church, but it's out of a sense of going through the motions, I've heard all this stuff before, or are we coming with anticipation, believing that God has told us not to give up meeting together and enjoying time together for our good and that the best possible thing for all of us is during this time of the week, to get our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on God, that that is what's best for us because we so easily start to worship other people or other things and we lose a sense of freedom in the process. How about your connection group? Is that a place that you look forward to going? Have have you lost this sense of awe and joy that you get to interact with other believers You get to discuss the word of God with them. Or has it become an inconvenience for you and something that you dread? We so easily turn the law of God into a burden. We ourselves are burdened. We burden other people with it rather than a pathway of joy. And Jesus aims to bring us rest from this perspective. Okay, so we see Jesus brings rest from self-pity, rest from religion, and finally, rest from destruction. Starting with verse 14, going to verse 18. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so this guy doesn't know that it's Jesus who has healed him. And the Pharisees are asking him, who is it that healed you? And that sparked some curiosity in him. He's like, well, it happened so fast, and he told me this, and then he left, and there was this huge crowd, and you guys started yelling at me. I didn't catch his name. And so he's standing in the temple, and Jesus comes and finds him. He's presumably there to thank God for his healing, re-engage in relationship with God. And Jesus comes to him and says this, see you are well. 
sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What an interesting thing to say. So what Jesus is saying here is the reason that you were paralyzed in the first place was as a consequence for your sinful behavior. This guy did something sinful and stupid that got him paralyzed. The consequence of that was an incredibly bitter 38 years of superstitiously hoping that he would be healed, lying by this pool, alone, hopeless, helpless, and bitter. And Jesus is saying, yes, I've healed you, but I don't want you to just go back to doing what you were doing before. I don't want you to say, okay, I got my limbs back, everything's good, now I'm just going to go back to the party lifestyle, now I'm just going to go back to living however I want to live. He says, stop that sinful lifestyle, here's why, that nothing worse could happen to you. What could be worse That's the question we're supposed to ask. Can you think of anything worse than getting in a drunk driving accident, being paralyzed for 38 years, and living in a place of utter loneliness and bitterness of heart? I can only think of one thing that Jesus could possibly be talking about. He's talking about eternal conscious torment. He is talking about hell. And he is saying very purposefully and very directly to this man. The primary concern that I have for you now is now that the biggest problem in your life is taken care of, your body is healed, the primary concern I have for you now is that you'll stop there. And that you won't receive the deeper healing that I want to bring into your life. The forgiveness of sins and the power to live a new life. See, Jesus is getting at something really profound here. He's saying to all of us, your real problem is not what you've identified as your problem. Your real problem is not your health or your marriage or your kids or your job. Your real problem is the brokenness in your relationship with God because you have responded to him with bitterness and anger and self-pity. And Jesus is aiming through this passage to rescue us from that place. Now, how does he rescue us from that place? Jesus says this about his ministry. Okay, the Jews persecuting Jesus. Jesus' answer to them is, my father is working till now and I am working. Now here's why that's so profound. The Jews 
I've said were upholding the Sabbath by telling people they shouldn't carry things. They took the Bible really seriously. And one conclusion that they had come to because they took the Bible seriously, a kind of intramural debate that they were having, was, does God work on the Sabbath? And the reason they were having that debate is because in the Old Testament, it says that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. But their contention was, if God was resting on the seventh day, truly resting and doing no work, then the universe would come undone. Because one of God's roles is to uphold the universe by the word of his power. So they had this debate, and they had concluded that God is exempt in that sense from the Sabbath and is working all the time, seven days a week. So now let this land on you. Jesus looks at these guys, and he says, My father is working till now, and I am working. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus is claiming to be God in a language that they would have understood, which is why their intention is to kill him from this point forward. Their intention is to kill him because he, though a man, they think, is claiming to be God. Now, what is the work of God? that Jesus has come to do from that point to this day. What is Jesus' work? This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. See, the work of Jesus is the redemption of lost people. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came for people with no faith, no hope, no help. He came for people who were spiritually paralyzed amongst a multitude of people who no one sees, no one cares about, who has been left, whose family doesn't interact with them. He has come for the destitute who have nothing to commend themselves before God. He has come for people who are in this spiritual condition. Now guys, think about this man's life as a sign. I think that's why Jesus came for this man in particular. He's using this man's life as an illustration of what he does to save us, what he rescues us from, which ultimately is hell. Now, I've been thinking about 38 years all week. That hasn't been able to get off my mind, and that's because I'm 39 years old, okay? So this guy was laying by the pool for about the same time that I've been alive, and I'm thinking about all the things that I've done in the last 39 years. I mean, I've gotten married. I've had kids. I've been in school for about 20 years. I've seen beautiful places. I've interacted with wonderful people. I've ate delicious meals. I've gone to amazing concerts. I've gone to amazing sporting events. I've moved houses. I've experienced so many different things. And for that length of time, all this man 
did was lay in that one spot. Lay in that one place. Think of the condition that your heart would be in. Beating physically, but no longer able to feel anything spiritually or or emotionally. So filled with bitterness. And you just see Jesus walk up onto the scene and with a word heals him. Listen, I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what brought you here this morning. Maybe you've been looking to a relationship or you've been looking to a future career or you've been looking to proving yourself through schooling or you've been looking to money to satisfy the needs of your heart. And those things have come up so empty time and time again for you that you feel like you are in an utter place of hopelessness and you don't know where to look. And you've concluded there is no one who can help you. There is no one human who can help you. But Jesus is no mere human. And with a word, he is here, the risen Christ. He died, he rose again, he is here. Invisible, but really here. And here is what he aims to say to you this morning. Take up your bed and walk. Leave behind your self-pity and your hopelessness, and your wandering. Leave behind your sin and walk. Live a new life. Come alive. Put on an identity as a child of God. Be who God has made you to be by the authority of Jesus. Let's walk in the newness of life because of what Jesus says and who he is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you put this story in your word for us, for helpless, broken, sinful, self-pitying, lost, lonely people. Thank you that none of us are beyond the reach of your grace because you see us. You know our names. You know what we've suffered. And you use your power to heal. Jesus, I pray for that person who came in the room. The last thing on their mind this morning was to start relationship with you. Would you, by your word, Make them rise up, take up their bed, and walk into newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.